excited to hear about Satan today. He uh, he needs to be revealed, you know, for who he really is. We uh, we're we're in, in trouble. <laughs> our our world does not seem to know or understand uh, the enemy that we have. I was. Uh, Doing a little bit of research, and you know, last week I talked about the the statistics that the polls that were taken about people that believe or don't believe in in absolute truth, and uh, you know that was kind of shocking in a way that that there's so many people that don't believe uh, that there is absolute truth, um, and and what I said was that uh, what I found was that 55 percent, according to one poll, of uh, young people. Uh, below 30, uh, don't believe that there's absolute truth. Well, kind of, if you understand what that might mean in terms of what people believe about the existence of God, then you would think it it makes sense that uh, there would be probably a a big number of people don't believe in the existence of Satan, that uh, that wouldn't follow, that if you don't believe that there is absolute truth, then you probably don't believe that there's really a God who's, who is uh, revealing truth, then, then why would you believe in a personal being, this, this, this reality of, of this uh, literal person named Satan, or this fallen angel named Satan. So what I was finding was that there, um, in the world, you know, the percentage of people that believe in Satan is, is decreasing, but that's not shocking. Okay, what is shocking is that the number of Christians um, who uh, don't seem to believe that Satan is real. Um, that was kind of what was startling. And I was reading through an article. And, of course, when you're reading through, you know, polls and statistics, they, they all are taking just a snapshot of a small group. And then they're saying, well, this is what everybody believes, you know, and that kind of thing. So, you know, you can twist that however you want. But... Um, I was reading on, and I don't know if you guys do this. I I, I like to see different sides of, of the, the the aisle or different points of view. So I'll read you know, like from some Christian sites what they say, but then I'll go and read on some secular sites and some more liberal you know sources and see what they have to say. Even though it really like aggravates me, I still go want to see what they say. And uh, this one article I was reading. I was talking about how, um, you know, in the church, you know, the church at, at large, um, there's a growing number of people don't believe in uh, Satan, don't believe that he really exists. And then it, it went on and talked about and quoted this uh, person who had written a book as a Christian um, that, uh, but they were, I mean, in, <laughs> I have to be careful um, you know, judging is one of those things that we're supposed to be careful about how we do that. <laughs> but this person who said they were a Christian, who was writing a book saying that they don't believe in hell or Satan or lots of these things, and I kind of think, then where are you getting the Christian part if you don't believe in all the things that the Bible teaches? But anyway... So they they wrote this book and they said that reason or or that they found that evangelical Christians uh, tend to believe in Satan more than than the rest of the church. And uh, and then they gave a reason for that. 
And the reason was, you probably never guessed, but in their opinion, their interpretation was because um, it is expedient for the evangelical church to uh, talk about Satan and hell and sin and judgment so that we can scare people into joining our church, which makes a lot of sense, right? And the answer is no, not really, because people don't tend to join your church if they're scared and fearful. I mean, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it's really a great marketing tool. But that was the idea, was we're just, we're manipulating people into joining the church by scaring them by talking about the devil and hell and all that stuff. And I thought, you know, they're missing something here, and you all know what I'm going to say. What are they missing? The evangelical church talks about the reality of Satan and hell because the Bible talks about the reality of Satan and hell, and I, what I love is that, you know, we're in a church that wants to hear the truth of God's word and demands that we speak the truth of God's word and keeps us accountable to that. And um, I appreciate that a lot because it is easy. I, I, I don't ever fear that, well, I can't talk about that. The church won't want to hear about that. I mean, I I know that difficult things and and things that maybe the the world would not want to necessarily hear or in some other places that it would be kind of rejected that our church wants to know what the bible says about everything and there's nothing that's off limits and so um i appreciate that because uh some things you know our world does not want to hear about and satan is one of those things because they don't want to address that there is a person. I'm, I'm saying person. I know that he's not a person like a human being, but a personality, a being that is intentionally, maliciously seeking to destroy human lives. People don't want that to be the case. They don't want to think that that's the case. They, they, they want to think something else entirely. And so we're going to get into the reality of who this being is, what his intentions are, what his schemes are, how to resist and, and fight and, and uh, be aware of what he's doing so that we don't fall into his trap. Because the truth is that a human being, a Christian person, can fall into the trap of Satan. And we'll get into this, okay? But let's, uh, let's look at what Peter has to say. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Let's stand as we read. 1 Peter chapter 5, um, starting in verse 6. And it says this. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of your word, Lord, that we have no fear. We have only confidence, Lord, in you. We have no anxiety about even the the state of this world, Lord. It's in your hands. Um, And all the anxiety that we may have, Lord, we cast on you. We give to you. We submit to you. We deliver over to you, allowing you to be in charge, Lord. But we need to know your word, your truth, the, the revelation of who you are and what you're doing and what you want us to do as a result. And what we need to know, Lord, that we have to... Uh, plant our feet on the foundation of your word, the truth. We have to plant our lives on the foundation of Christ as our Savior. And we have to allow your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and obedience and wisdom and understanding and faith and trust and all those things that you give us, promise to us, that you enable in us, Lord. We pray for wisdom. We pray for insight. We pray for a receptive heart and a receptive mind. We pray that your Holy Spirit would not only flow through uh, the preaching and teaching of your word, but into and uh, be poured out on your church. All those that are listening, Lord, that our ears would be open and ready to hear what you have to say, that you would be the teacher, Lord. I, I thank you that you are willing, that you're patient, that you are able, Lord, to teach even a, a hard heart, Lord, you are, you are still patient to seek to cause a change, Lord. You can take a heart of stone, you can make it a heart of flesh. And so we thank you for that, Lord, but we pray that your spirit is moving today through your church to reveal your truth for your glory and for our sake, that we might be protected, blessed, strengthened, encouraged, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, there is some talk that uh, Satan is not real. Um, He's basically just a concept of evil. And uh, I thought, you know, well, what does the Bible actually say? This is what we're talking about. It's not my opinion versus your opinion versus somebody else's opinion versus what the world says versus what, you know, is on the media or whatever else. It's what does God say? And if, if we cannot find the reality of it in the word, then we have to change our minds, right? So what happens is that when you have a renewing of your mind through the word of God, we're transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is happening is that you're saying, I don't have the answer in myself. I'm going to let God tell me what the truth and the reality is and let him push out of my mind the false things and into my heart the right things and the true things. So we just go back to the word and say, okay, if there's a question about the reality of Satan, then let's just look and see what the the Bible says about who this creature is. And you go to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the introduction of this being And he is, in this form, a serpent who is talking to Eve. Now, here's where we have 
some issues, okay, this is where we begin to possibly formulate some problems, is that we tend to start to disbelieve the Bible from the very beginning because the world is trying to tell us that this isn't really what happened. One man, one woman created and then the population of the earth coming from these two people. And so because of that, then all of the the rest of what we see in Genesis up until like chapter 11 becomes this question mark in a lot of people's mind. These aren't real events. These are just myths and fables that are given to us to help us in our faith. When what we see in Scripture is that this is a revealing from God to us about what He did in the beginning. And everything that you see on these first pages is talked about in literal, actual language. These are real events that happened in real time. And these things are are not given to us as poetry or myths. They are given to us as facts and as evidence and as revelation from God of who he is and what he did. So when we get to chapter 3 and we see that there is a serpent that is talking to Eve, this is a literal, real event that is happening that Satan has taken on the form of a serpent and he is actually talking to Eve about uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so what he begins to say initially is, did God really say this? Did God really say you couldn't eat of all the trees or any tree, and, and she's oh well, we're only supposed to not eat of this one particular tree, and she and she says if we do we die, and he says well you won't really die. So what he begins to do initially is to undermine the the trustworthiness of God and to establish something else, which is you do what is in your heart to do, and that is what is ultimately right. Okay. Now, think about that for a second. Satan has not changed his scheme or his tactics in all this time. Undermine whether or not you can trust God. Is that happening today? Do what is in your heart to do. That is what is ultimately right. Would you say that that is the predominant ethic, or I should say moral, of our culture today? Follow your heart. You are who you want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. You should do what you want to do. That is ultimately what is right. And anybody who tells you that there's some higher standard or some other ethic that you should follow, they're trying to oppress you and they're trying to control you. And really what we see is that God is trying to bless you by saving you from the desires of what's in your heart because what's in your heart is going to lead you down a path of destruction. Jeremiah says that the, the, the intentions of the human heart are wicked. He says, in fact, they're so wicked, who can understand it? And so what we do is we say, I'm not going to follow the desires of my heart. I'm going to submit the desires of my heart to God and I'm going to let Him redeem, change, sanctify, change, and to make it something that is godly so that the desires of my heart. And so this is where Psalms says 
that if you trust the Lord, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Because why? Because he has changed the desires of your heart to be God's desires. That, that's, a, that's a big difference. So here's this being in Genesis um, that we see initially introduced, and then you see him again in Job. And in Job, what we find is that he is going in and out of the presence of the Lord. And uh, while he's in the presence of the Lord, kind of he's come with the other, some of the other angels. Uh, God does something interesting. He says, uh, have you seen my servant Job? And Job is down here like, God, <laughs> leave me out of this thing. Right? If you know the story of Job, then that's kind of what you would think he would say. So God says, look at my servant Job. He's blameless. He's a good guy. He does what's right, etc., etc." And uh, Satan says, well, yeah, you've put a hedge of protection around this guy. All the stuff that he has, you've blessed him with, you've protected it, and nothing can get at him. And so we see two things. One is that Satan is portrayed as a real being in real conversation with God. And number two... There's an interesting teaching here about uh, the extent of Satan's power. What can he do? How far can he go? The first thing that we see is that he can do nothing except for what God allows him to do. He didn't have that power and authority by himself. He can't do anything unless God allows him to do something, which is an important truth to understand, right? Now, the other thing is that Um, It says that, I think correctly, that God has put a hedge of protection around Job and around his things and around his life and around his family. And I thought, you know, you and I will probably will hear that from time to time, won't you? Like praying prayers, God, please place a hedge of protection around my my family. Would you place a hedge of protection around my, my kids? Would you, you know, you ever hear that language? And I think... This is important for us to to grasp that we can and maybe we should be praying those prayers because the reality of, of uh, Satan's work and his activity and his power is that it is confronted by and it is limited by what God will allow. So to me, I think there's no problem. In fact, maybe we ought to be Praying more along those lines. God, protect, put a hedge of protection around my family, around my marriage, around my kids, around my, my spiritual life, around my mind, around my the things that are going to happen today. Would you put a hedge of protection around our church? I, I, I prayed that this morning. God, put a hedge of protection around our church that when people come in, that they feel safe, that they feel like this is a place they can hear from you, that this is a place where Satan can't have access. That we want to pray that God would begin to do some of these things and and perhaps he'll honor those prayers by coming through with the power of his Holy Spirit and protecting some of these things. I think there's power in that. But I want you to understand something about the limit of Satan's ability, his power, his his authority. It's clear from Job that he does have a limit. Now, I want you to think about this in another way too. What we always see and what we always hear about the limit of Satan's power is that he's like uh, a, a dog on a leash, right? You ever heard that? Like he he's a, he can only go as far as what God will allow. Now there's a reason for that. Is because Satan is not equal to God. 
by any stretch of the imagination. He is not equal to God. He is a creature, which means that he is limited by the same things that other creatures are limited by. So think about it in this way. You and I have a certain amount of freedom to do a lot of things. Would you agree? But you don't have the freedom to do anything. You can do lots of things, good or bad, but you can't do anything. So you can't yet time travel. And I don't think we ever will. I don't think the hot tub thing is going to work out. Um, I've never actually watched the movie, but anyway. time You can't go back in time. You could want to. You could wish you could. There have been some, some things in my life where I prayed God would turn the clock back so I could undo some stupid things that I did. You ever feel that bad about something in your life that you just are like overwhelmed with God, please, would you please just let me go back a day? And it's just, it's not going to happen. You're not going to go back in time. You cannot do that. You can't be in two places at once or three or four or five. You're limited by time and space. You, you can do a lot of things, but there's also other things that are impacting your freedom or your ability or your authority, okay? And so you could go try to rob a bank. I'm not saying you should, but you could try to do that. But there are a lot of other things that are going to prevent that from happening, right? You're going to get arrested. You're going to get caught. You're going to go to jail. You're going to, you're, all your freedom is going to be taken away and all these different... So you have these other forces that are at work. And this is what's interesting about the power of Satan and demonic forces that there are also angelic forces and spirits of God that he is using. There are thrones and powers and dominions and authorities in the heavenly places that are at work. And so Satan doesn't have carte blanche power to do anything that he wants. There are angels and there's the power of the Holy Spirit and there are things that God is is limiting and there are things that God allows and that all these things are in play. And you and I are here on this earth with all these spiritual forces kind of working around us and we don't see it. But sometimes we do feel it. You, You ever feel like that? I mean, I look even just like at our county right now. Mercer County, and I think there's spiritual forces at work here. There's some darkness. There's some light. There's some good. There's some bad. There, but it's not just human activity devoid of any spiritual power. There's spiritual forces that are at play with the things that are happening in our schools, things that are happening in our churches, things that are happening in our homes, things that are happening community-wide. It's not just a natural world that we live in. And you and I actually have some place in how these things continue. You're not a dust particle floating along at the whim and the will of everything else around you. God has placed within you a potential and a purpose 
within your home, within your school, within your workplace, within your community, within your church, that He can use you to a spiritual end. And He's calling us into more. More than where we've been. I, I think that... All right, I'm getting off track. But I believe that the church, by and large... Man, I don't want to sound too negative. I think we've been sleeping a little bit. Peter says, be watchful, be alert, be sober-minded. And I think when things are good, we're, we're not watchful. We're not sober-minded. We're not aware and we're not really concerned with what the enemy is doing. We're kind of like, well, my life is good, so your lives can go to hell over here. And they are. And our world is kind of in this downward spiral because the church, by and large, in this country is, I don't know. It's not the powerful church that it ought to be. Christians are not stepping up the way that we need to. And I'm included in that just like anybody else. But it's this issue of, man, we got to... We got to take seriously the fact that this world is is not headed in the right direction, and God has called us to stand up and say something about it and do something about it. So, is Satan real? Yeah, he's got some real agendas going on. In Job, we see the limit of his power. Um, we see this other thing in First Chronicles, where David it says David was incited by Satan to take a census. Now, the census thing is kind of like, most people don't get why that's a big deal. The big deal about it was that the law said that you had to pay a redeeming price for every person that you counted. And somehow they dismissed that and they were just going to take a census and count people like, and without paying the redeeming price. And so what that meant was every life was now on the line. Every person that they counted should die because they're not paying the redeeming price for them. And so God comes back to David and he tells him, hey, guess what? There's some real trouble brewing here because you have done something that is not just slightly wrong. It's illegal. It's it's against the law. And 70,000, this is God being merciful, okay? Extremely merciful. But 70,000 people died because of this sin of David. Now, David was led astray by a temptation of Satan. That's what it says. He's a, he's a real being. He incited David. He tempted David to do this thing. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a prophet. David, yeah, he had his issues with Bathsheba and all that stuff and Uriah the Hittite. And he had, a, he had the problem there. But the scripture says that David had, had asked or declared, this is after David and Bathsheba's affair, he said, Lord, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. And so what has happened is that when you look at that passage, you see David had what New Testament Christians have. He had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, on a permanent basis, that he lived with the Holy Spirit inside of him. Just like any New Testament Christian after the Pentecost. There were a few people in the Old Testament that seemed to have that. David was one of them. 
So he's writing scripture, he's writing prophecy. So in the Psalms, what you see is David prophesying many times about who the Messiah would be and how they would be. And you can go back and look and see the predictions that he made about Jesus over and over and over. So David is not like an unspiritual person by any means. He's a spiritual powerhouse. And yet Satan somehow still got at him with David and Bathsheba, but also in this other instance in the, in the um, census. So guess what? You and I, you think that, that we're immune to Satan's influence, that he couldn't possibly tempt me. He'll never get at me. He'll never tempt me to do the wrong thing. I'll always do the right thing. I know what he's up to. We, we have to be watchful and aware and ready and bound to a love of God's word and standing in faith. And so Satan incites David to do this thing and uh, he tempts him to do it and he, he does and people pay the price. David pays the price, but also 70,000 people lost their lives. And this is what I'm saying is that the influence of the enemy on a Christian person, on a believer is not just that you have a bad day, but that a bad day for a believer could mean a bad, really bad day for a lot of other people around you that you are needing to influence positively for Christ. I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute, but the New Testament, if you uh, you go through what... Jesus experienced, then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And remember what happened? He was met by Satan. And Satan tempted him. And Jesus, of all people in, in the history of the world, was the only one that we know successfully never um, gave in to Satan's temptations and his tricks and his schemes. But three times he came back to him with a different temptation and Jesus resisted him by what? The word of God. He, he continually went back to, well, the word says this and the word says this. And the, Now, Jesus had the word because Jesus was the word. He knew exactly what the Bible said and what God had revealed and how to defeat Satan and resist him. But it was not just, here are some things in Jesus' mind and this is just how Jesus felt. These are experiences that Jesus had with the person of the devil. And then he talks about who Satan is in John 8. He's talking to the religious leaders who want to kill him. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth. Now, saying he's a murderer from the beginning means all... Death on the planet from day one is attributed to Satan. He bears the guilt for that. Do you understand that? He's a murderer from the beginning because he incited sin and sin brings death. He doesn't stand with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies, which means that... God is truth, God is reality, God is pure existence, and the things that lead people astray into misunderstanding, into falsehood, into sin, into lies, and all the rest of it, is the product of Satan's influence. 
directly or indirectly. Whether he is whispering in your ear or if it's something that he has perpetrated in the world and it's continuing on and you are being impacted by that down the line. He's still responsible for it. And so Jesus talks about him as a real being, not as a concept. Peter, Paul, uh, Paul talks about um, Satan and he says uh, a couple of different things which are interesting. One is, I don't know, this gets a little confusing. You want to be confused? Like, why not? Um, He says that there was a messenger of Satan given to him, a thorn in the flesh. Remember that? And Jesus, he says three times, I asked for him to take it away. And, and Jesus said, um, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And, and Paul says that those things were given to me, that, that thorn of the flesh was given to me to keep me from becoming conceited because, remember, Paul had seen visions. He had healed people in miraculous ways. He had gone to heaven. He said, I don't know, in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He said that like two, three times. Uh, but I went to heaven. I saw things that I couldn't even write or tell anybody about. Like the Holy Spirit told me, don't let people know what you saw. Just like what John said in Revelation when he said, I heard the seven thunders speak and I was about to write it down, but then I was told, don't write it down. And so Paul has seen visions like that, seen things like that. He's, he's done things that are just not really humanly possible. I mean, he, the guy was stoned to death. And then just like rose up and, and walked back into town. Okay? Like the, the Holy Spirit just re- restored him after some, some people ganged up on him and stoned him. I think to death. It doesn't necessarily say to death, so I'm implying that. But regardless, I mean, it takes a little bit of guts <laughs> to go right back into the town that they just killed you or tried to. He's like... There was this tendency in me to be conceited. And here's what God did. He opened the hedge a little bit and let a little dart or thorn, he says, to pierce me so that I I would rely more on God and not think that it's all about me. And here's what you understand about the power of Satan. This is why I'm saying that he can only do what God lets him do, but God may open that hedge a little bit in order to even use the the work of Satan in, for his purpose, for his good purpose. See why I'm saying that's kind of confusing? But what happens is that when you understand what is coming at you, This is why he led Jesus into the the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. In order to what? Show Jesus exactly the path that he needed to be on to confront the devil in his life, to know that he had the power to do that, to know that he could do what God was calling him to do, even in spite of conflict, in spite of lies and deceit and all the other things and the other temptations. And God may allow some things in your life in order to teach you, mature you, grow you, show you how strong He is in you. But doesn't mean that you give in to the, the work of, of the devil. It means that you rely more heavily on the grace of God. 
it's not easy. I mean, that's, that's hard. He says that, uh, Paul says that um, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Remember that? He's talking about these false apostles and they go around like they're, they're righteous. And he says, well, it's no wonder. It's, it's not to be surprised. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. We picture Satan as this gruesome, horrific thing, right? Red horns, claws and fangs and the tail and goat legs, and right? And he may really look like that in his real being because he is a fallen creature full of sin and hatred, okay? He may look something like that. He's called a dragon. He's called a serpent. And there's something ugly about him. But somehow he can make himself seem like an angel of light. And here's what I think. Not that you care what I think, but this is how I believe it works. He tempts people with things that are appealing to you. Not things that are grotesque to you. He doesn't, he's not going to tempt you with something that you find repugnant. He's going to tempt you with the things that are along with your tendency. So follow, like I said before, follow the desires of your heart. Do what you want to do. You're free. You don't have to worry about God's you know, control over your life. Like being a Christian and following God's will and reading the Bible. That's like really restrictive over the, my freedom. And I, I don't want God to restrict my freedom. I want to do what I want to do. And Satan really appeals to that in people that do what you want to do. What you want to do has to be right. What's in your heart has to be the right path for you. So we don't tell people to pray about things. We tell people to what? Follow your heart. Look inside. See, see where your desires are and then go that way. And that's going to be the right path for you. And we're telling our kids, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. And we're trying to tell our kids, maybe you need to pray about that. Maybe you need to ask the Lord about that issue, what you want to do and what he wants you to do. And when you can get those things together, when you get to do what God wants you to do, then now you've fulfilled your purpose in this world. You follow the desires of your heart, you're going to fulfill the purpose of Satan for you in this world. Is that a popular message? Can we put that on YouTube and get a viral thing going on that? Uh, Probably not. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear, do what you want to do. Be who you want to be, not be who God wants you to be. But I came to know the Lord by understanding this one thing. He made me. He made me. He knows what I'm supposed to be, and I don't. And when I give this thing that he made me, he created to him, he'll make the most of it. That was it. And I... I'm like, I I need to follow the Lord because if I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to make a big mess out of all of it. So Peter, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, roaring like a lion, looking for someone to devour. Can he devour you? Now you're like, I don't know, that seems like a trick question, doesn't it? Does this seem like a trick question? Because I'm a Christian. 
I have the Holy Spirit in me. I am saved. I'm going to heaven. It is permanent. It is absolute. Nothing, no one, not Satan can come between that. I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. So he can't devour me. But what if devouring you doesn't necessarily mean taking your salvation? What if he can destroy your life and you can still go to heaven? Think he'd be happy with that? Think he'd be okay with that? He's okay. You go to heaven all you want, but your life here is going to be a disaster. And here's how it works. He has two basic tactics. Now, he's got more schemes. He's, he's been around a while and he's not really stupid, okay? Two basic tactics, though. Number one is fear. Um, Hebrews says that he is, uh, uh, through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews uh, 2, 14 and 15. Here's what you understand. Satan somehow has a certain amount of power and control that he uses through fear, fear of death. And what he does with that is he does two things. One, for the non-believer, he tries to get you to ignore that you're going to die. Most people who don't know the Lord don't ever want to think about death. They don't want to talk about it. It's morbid. Don't let me, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to, you, when people talk about dying, it's like just, right? I don't want to hear about that. They just want to ignore the idea because it's so terrifying to die that they don't want to think or see or hear or understand or anything, okay? For the believer, it's a little different. Peter's talking to believers who are suffering under persecution. And he's saying, be careful, be watchful, be sober, be mindful, because the fear that of dying, Satan can use that to get you to compromise with the world. Did I talk about the, the, the uh, worshiping of the emperor? Or was that 8 o'clock? Okay. So what was going on was that in the early church, the, uh, the Christians believed Jesus was Lord, just like we do, right? But the Romans, they had all these gods, all kinds of gods, and their gods were like born and they died and they did stupid things and they didn't know everything and they were like... They were like bad superheroes, okay? They just, they weren't great. And so they would worship other things, like the emperor. They would say, he's a god. And they mean like little g god, like he's just a god among all the other gods and we can worship him and honor him as a god because they did not have the concept like we do about an almighty, omnipotent, all-knowing, good, perfect god who created everything. Their idea of gods where they're born, they die, they do some things. So the emperor, he's in charge of all of Rome, so maybe he is a god, right? They, they just they had that concept. And so for from time to time, the emperor would say, I want to be worshipped. I want people to give sacrifices and offerings and say, Caesar is Lord. And the Romans would do it because they didn't care. It was like, yeah, he's a god, fine, that's whatever. And the Christians were like, we can't do that because Jesus is Lord and that is idolatry. But what would happen though was if they didn't worship Caesar as Lord, they would fall under the government's sword. They'd be persecuted, tortured, killed, etc., right? And so what 
Peter is trying to tell him is, stand firm in your faith. Don't, don't compromise with the culture. You, you might suffer, but this is your witness to the world that Jesus is Lord. And, and here's what I was thinking like, man, the church today would probably go back and tell the church in Rome, just go ahead and do it, it's fine. You, you, if you can spare your life, if you can spare some pain by just saying Caesar is Lord and, and you know, lighting a candle or whatever, then who's, it's not hurting anyone, right? So what's the big deal? And the big deal is that you've destroyed your witness. And Satan would love to destroy your witness through fear. And here's what I am seeing and I think you're seeing is that the church's witness today has been virtually silenced through fear of backlash from the culture. Whoa, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want people to say that we're intolerant. I don't want to do anything that people wouldn't think is really cool. So we'll, we'll just water it down and water it down until it's really palatable to everyone who doesn't believe. Right? Isn't that the gospel? Just pour enough water in it so that anybody who believes anything can just drink it and be fine with it? You, you don't understand what I'm saying? Like, Jesus, as the exclusive Savior of the world, is an offensive thing. And He intends it to be an offense to the lies of the enemy. He intends it to be offensive. Because it has to change your mind and change your life and redirect you back to God's path instead of the path of of the world and of Satan. So that's one of his tactics. Um, The other one is to, and it really kind of goes along with it though, is to prompt or to tempt towards sin. Because if he can destroy your life in sin, now people don't think that sin will destroy their life. But here's what begins to happen. As a believer, okay, as a non-Christian, your life is already under the condemnation of God for your sin because it's not been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. But for a believer who falls into sin or, or who is in active disobedience, okay, here's what happens. When this pattern begins in your life, anger, bitterness, and defensiveness begin to grow. And then there becomes this thing where being in church kind of feels uncomfortable because they keep talking about this thing that I, I'm doing as if I shouldn't be doing it. And the people that I'm around, they're not doing that thing that I like to do. And they're saying that what I'm doing is wrong. And so there begins to be a, a division, first of all, in your relationship with God, secondly, in your relationship with other people, especially Christians, and then potentially in your family, because they see the division, they see the wrongness of where you're headed. And so now you've begun to not only be disconnected from God, but now you're divided from your family. And then thirdly, you have this other issue of of the overwhelming um, destruction that sin's going to cause in all other areas of your life because it becomes this addiction, this thing that has become more important than anything else in your life. And what happens with that is that the believer, not only are they no longer a good witness, now they are 
a bad witness. Now, a bad witness means that the world sees... You ever hear this? The church is full of what? Finish my sentence. What? (laughs) The church is full of hypocrites. And that's not true. This church is full of people who are making mistakes and yet seeking the Lord and repentant and struggling and making mistakes and going back to the Lord. And then there's a few hypocrites. <laughs> there, are, there are a few that, and I'm not going to point out your names, but <laughs> but here's what does happen is that there will be that person who says, yeah, I'm a church. I, I go to church. I'm a Christian. And they're doing everything the world's doing. They're not repentant. They, they're not obedient whatsoever to God's will or his word. And the world looks at that and they're like, what's going on here? And that one person then becomes the spokesperson for the church. And they're not at all. But Satan has devoured. You see how that works? He's just, he's looking for somebody who he can destroy their witness and then use that to destroy the witness of the whole church. And Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that there are people suffering. Your brothers all over the world are suffering for their faith. Stand firm in the faith. Here's what he, here's what he means. Two things. And I'm way over time and I've got to quit. But the first thing is this. He says, humble yourself before the Lord. Here's what that means. They were suffering. And it wasn't because of sin, it was because of persecution. The first thing that you have to do, if if your circumstances are not what you hoped or want them to be, you have to decide or discern, is it because I'm in sin and I am suffering because of a sin that I'm committing? Is that the reason? Or if, if that's not, and be honest with yourself, okay, go to the Lord and ask for wisdom in that. But if that's not the case... Maybe it's because you're actually living a godly life and you're being persecuted, so to speak, from the world that you live in. And humble yourself before the Lord means I'm going to trust God in the midst of my difficult circumstance. And I'm not going to fear. I'm going to praise. Okay? That's what humble means in that, sense, in that instance. And then the other thing is that he says, stand firm in your faith, which means that you, the, the church needs to know what is in this book. We need to study it. We need to read it. We need to be familiar with it. We need to believe it because all the things that are leading the world astray in lies, manipulation, falsehood, etc., they're all revealed here in the truth. The only way that you're going to be deceived is because you don't know what this book says. You have, when you are a believer, the power of the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and insight and understanding of what is in here. And all I can figure is that a lot of Christians are just not opening the book. 
How can so many Christians, not our church, but how can so many Christians in this country be so led astray other than the fact that they cannot possibly know what is really in here? And listen, I'm going to say this one last time. You cannot wait for your pastor to unpack everything in here. You have to read it yourself. I'm not ever in my whole lifetime of preaching going to cover everything that needs to be covered for you to know what's in this book. This is a taste. This is not the whole thing. Amen? Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the power. We don't fear our enemy. Lord, we do have an enemy, but we don't fear him. Lord, we're confident in you. We're we're respectful. We know that there's danger, but we're aware of it. And so, Lord, thank you that uh, we can step around, that we can step over, that we can actually stand up against um, the lies, the deception, uh, the destruction, and we can live a life worthy, a life that is honoring to you, a life that is a beacon of light to the world. Lord, we pray that it would be. We pray that you would use us to show others the path, the path to you, the path to salvation, the path to a life uh, that is worth living. Lord, uh, purposeful, meaningful, full of joy, full of peace. Lord, we thank you that you offer that through the power of your spirit, through faith in Jesus, through the presence of of your grace, mercy, forgiveness, and your will. Lord, I I pray that you would speak to our hearts, not just now, but as we go. Help us to take seriously what we've heard. Let it sink deep into our hearts, Lord. Help us to be motivated um, to wrestle with some of the things that we're dealing with and to hold on to you in the midst of it. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning just to respond to the Lord as he's calling you. You may feel attacked. And and here's the thing that I didn't really even get into is the spiritual warfare that some people are really wrestling with. Um, You're not helpless in that whatsoever. You... The he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. That is a direct promise that this Holy Spirit in you is more powerful than the devil who wants to destroy you. If you're struggling, it may be that you haven't called upon the power of the Spirit to drive out the effect of of your enemy. We're here to pray for you and help you in any way. If the Lord is calling you to the altar for one reason or another, would you just come? We would love to pray for you. The prayer team will be here to pray with you here to be available after. Amen? Let's stand and sing.